If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Going into battle requires a huge amount of bravery. But it also takes a good deal of courage to refuse to fight when the rest of the world is at war. During the Second World War in Britain... Around 60,000 people registered as conscientious objectors, seeking an exemption from military service on the grounds of religious beliefs, political convictions or moral conscience. In his new book, Battles of Conscience, historian Professor Tobias Kelly charts the experiences of five of them. I spoke to him to find out more. The stories that we usually hear about World War II are ones of blitz spirit and battlefield daring, but your new book looks at bravery of of a different kind in the Second World War. What was it that made you want to look at the experiences of conscientious objectors in the conflict? Probably about 10, 12 years ago, I was in the National Archives in in, in London and I accidentally ordered up uh, the wrong set of files. Uh, So I was stuck there for an hour or so whilst I waited for the right set of files. So I decided to open what I had and the, the folder was full of hundreds of applications for exemption for military service on the grounds of conscience. Incredibly short, uh, half a page at most, but in these half half a page people were were explaining and trying to set out their most deeply held beliefs and convictions about the things that were most important to them and they were a mixture of religious convictions political convictions ethical and moral convictions and i was deeply intrigued at this point about who these people were why they were saying it what people made of them and i've been spending the last 10 12 years of my life following them, trying to work out why they did what they did and and how people responded. There were about 60,000 conscientious objectors or or people who registered as conscientious objectors. Many others would find ways of avoiding fighting uh, without registering. Uh, But the the legal uh, acknowledgement of your status as a conscientious objection was gained through appearing at a tribunal and you were directed to either uh, do some type of alternative service 
uh, ambulance work, growing vegetables, uh, or so on, uh, or into the military, um, Royal Army Medical Corps, non-combatant corps, so into the military without carrying arms, or your claim for exemption was refused altogether, uh, and therefore you have a choice. You could either join the military uh, as directed, or you could still refuse and face the the threat of, of prison, jail, or some other form of punishment. In your book, you follow the stories of five different conscientious objectors. Can you give us an idea of the range of people that wanted an exemption from military service and, and the varied reasons for doing so? So I, I tried to choose five that represent a, a kind of a range, but in, in truth, it's very hard to make uh, collective claims about who conscientious objectors were, because by definition, they were very individualistic. They were following their own conscience uh, as as they saw it. In the book, I follow, for example, the life of uh, Tom Burns, who was an English teacher working in, in, in Eastern England. He'd grown up in, in poverty in the in the East End of London. And, and the day war started, he volunteered for a Quaker-run ambulance unit and spent the rest of the war uh, following this ambulance unit around various battlefields from Finland to North Africa to Greece and spent uh, uh, two years as a prisoner of war after he was captured by the Germans during the retreat, during the Allied retreat from Greece. Um, I follow uh, Stella Sinjin, who was a, a vet working in London, who was a deeply Christian pacifist. Stella Sinjin was deeply convinced that the, the, the New Testament, the message of the New Testament, meant that people should not take up arms. And she spent the war uh, volunteering in a, in a shelter uh, in, uh, underneath Hungerford Bridge for the, the down and outs and homeless who were deemed too dirty or disease-ridden to, to shelter in the, in, the, in, the other, in the other bomb shelters around London uh, and spent the rest of her time working as, uh, as an ambulance uh, driver, uh, ferrying the wounded around London during the Blitz. But at one point later on in the war, the, um, a form of industrial conscription was uh, introduced for women and uh, she uh, refused to be compelled to do what she was told to do, which was to go and work in a filing office. And therefore, she- other examples in the book are, 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 are Ronald Duncan, who was a playwright, and tried to set up a, a communal farm in, in Devon, on the, on the Cornish-Devon borders, uh, convinced uh, that he could build a kind of an island of peace in the midst of war uh, where people could come and live communally and show that it was possible to to live another way. So what were attitudes towards conscientious objectors like in the Second World War? In the First World War, we've all heard stories about conscientious objectors being given white feathers as a sign of cowardice, but how had things changed by World War II? Interestingly, they changed a great deal, I think. I mean, as you say, in the First World War, conscientious objectors were stigmatised and harassed and shamed. And there was certainly some uh, harassment and stigmatisation around conscientious objectors. But by and large, the the response of, of people was one of, of tolerance. Uh, we, we disagree with you, but uh, we respect your opinion and we respect your right uh, uh, to hold that opinion. Particularly, 
if the conscientious objector was willing to do something to make other types of sacrifices. So Stella Sinjin drove an ambulance, Ronald Duncan grew food. So often they were given exemption on the condition that we would make some type of um, contribution to the war effort. Now, that, of course, caused great anxiety uh, uh, for them because... They didn't want to make a commitment. They didn't want to be involved in a war effort. But many of them began to realize that in a world mobilized for war, uh, there was no space outside it. So it wasn't a question of being at peace or being at war, but the level of complicity you were going to have. Um, So that was, in in truth, they had most difficulty with themselves, wondering whether they were doing the right thing, whether whether they were following their conscience or whether their conscience was telling them to do the thing they should be doing at that particular moment. One of the words that comes up again and again in the stories that you share is compromise. What were some of the compromises that conscientious objectors had to pick between? So, for example, Tom Burns, when he volunteered for a uh, a Quaker ambulance unit, the Friends Ambulance Unit, uh, they had to wear a uniform uh, because they were serving near the front lines and they needed to be distinguished from civilians and from the other side. And many Quakers were deeply unhappy with that. They thought that was a step too far. Other, other ambulance workers relied on the military to provide uh, supplies and food and transport. So they constantly had to ask, is this, go, is this stepping over the line to, for, being in the, in, 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 for being too involved in military service? But even in the, their day-to-day life, uh, you know, food was brought into to the UK um, by ships that were guarded by the Royal Navy. So it wasn't a constant decisions that they had to make over whether and where they would draw the line between war and peace and where where their convictions and their conscience would take them. What were some of the most hardline approaches to that unwillingness to compromise? There were some extreme ones. Uh, some people were, were willing uh, to go to jail. And I described it, you know, Stella Sinjin in the end said, I'm not going to be compelled to do this type of work. I'm going to go to jail. And in the book, I, uh, I, I follow uh, others. Um, Michael Tippett, for example, uh, uh, the composer, went to jail as a conscientious objector. He saw going to jail in some ways, in some ways as many others did, uh, as proof of his conscience, that he was sincere and genuine. Um, but others thought that kind of that kind of hard line stance were, were was counterproductive and denied responsibility um, I followed the story of, of, of another man Roy Ridgeway who uh, worked in various hospitals across the uh, across Britain uh, and then later on went to uh, out to the Middle East uh, as an ambulance worker with the free French uh, forces and he kind of um, very memorably wrote in his diary that for a pacifist being at war the only way he could totally avoid war was by committing suicide and suicide is not something a pacifist should do uh, so so he thought that although it was difficult uh, compromises were absolutely inevitable and important Something that you recount in the book is the experience of going to a tribunal to defend your status, essentially, as a conscientious objector and to get an exemption from military service. Did people tend to get a fair hearing at these trials or was it a bit of a kangaroo court? It's it's a good question. Uh, I suppose it depends who you ask. There was a stark contrast to the First World War. In the First World War, the tribunals were made up of, uh, well, they had military 
officers that, uh, on the tribunals, and so they were incredibly hostile uh, towards conscientious objectors, and exemptions on any grounds were, were relatively rare. In the Second World War, the uh, uh, shifted the military had been taken off to tribunals. They were largely lawyers, academics, uh, clergymen, other local uh, notables. And they gave conscientious objectors a tough time and, and, and asked them uh, some very tough questions. Uh, but again, as long as they were willing to make some other kind of commitment to make some kind of compromise to do something for the public good. The, the majority of them were given an exemption on those grounds. Um, some of them did have a very, very hard time uh, uh, and they would, they would be refused um, uh, exemption. They would go to prison. They'd be let out. Uh, they would apply again and they would be refused exemption again and they would go to prison in a process that was known as cat and mouse. But that was really reserved for a minority. Um, and if you could show particularly that your your conscience, the tribunal seemed most comfortable with a conscience that was, I suppose you might call it Quaker-like, Protestant-tempered, not seemingly radical in its stances, although, of course, Quakers would, would, would contest that. If your conscience was somehow seemed more confusing to the tribunal, if it was something they weren't so familiar with, if they thought it looked confrontational, you could then have difficulty. So... Um, on the one hand, you would have, you would have Jehovah's Witnesses and Christophians who the tribunals seemingly just could not understand their stances. But on the other hand, you also had um, anarchists and socialists, Scottish and Welsh nationalists, even some Indian nationalists as well, who uh, the tribunal similarly gave a hard time to because they thought their conscience was was too political uh, rather than than ethical and moral. So you had a better chance then of getting an exemption if you had a religious founding to your pacifism rather than a political one. Yes, uh, and, a, and a Christian Protestant basis to it in particular. Uh, Catholics could have a great deal of difficulty because the tribunal would often say, well, the Catholic Church in, in Britain is, is in favour of the war and a Catholic conscience follows what the cardinal says it should do. Therefore, you can't have a genuine Catholic conscience, although Catholic conscientious objectors would, have, of course, contest that but importantly the, the the law at the time in 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 britain was relatively unique in that it didn't require uh that the conscience was 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 religious or christian it simply said a genuine sincere conscience unlike many other places in the world unlike in the u.s uh for example but in practice um uh, the tribunals would assume conscience had to take on a christian protestant form what that meant is that Many pacifists or many conscientious objectors were were both political and religious. They they didn't see that there was a difference between them, um, uh, and they were in the broad kind of tradition of Christian socialism in particular. So they would put forward their Christianity over their socialism when they came before the tribunal. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And the overwhelming sense you get from his letters, as well as accounts from some of the soldiers who were imprisoned with, with him, was of, of mutual respect and interest, partly because he and other people like him had been willing to get their hands dirty. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the tribunals that really stood out to me in the book is, is that of Roy Ridgway, who has a somewhat unfortunate tribunal that doesn't go his way, and then he finds himself in this strange limbo. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about his story. So Roy was a, a young man growing up in, in, in London uh, at the start of the war, uh, quite shy and quite nervous, but a, kind of a convinced, a convinced pacifist uh, and involved in something called the Peace Pledge Union, which was a kind of a major, probably the most significant ever British peace movement. When, when war started, um, he a, a appeared before a tribunal and was refused. And so he was then enlisted in the in the military and sent uh, to to Ilfracombe. Now he arrived and he was still convinced that he wouldn't serve and didn't want to serve in the army. Uh, so he simply refused to put on the uniform. Uh, that led to him being arrested and detained and court-martialed. And at that point, Roy was playing a very deliberate game here. At that point. He, he had to get a punishment that was over three months because if, it, if the punishment was under three months, he could go through the cat and mouse process that I talked about earlier. He could be punished, released, and then re-enlisted, and then punished and released, and then re-enlisted. He had to make sure that his punishment was three months because uh, if it was over three months, he would then be discharged from the military. And his it was it, because he had been willing and he had gone through such a punishment, it was often seen as proof that his conscience uh, was genuine. So he spent uh, uh, time in, in prison in, in Devon before eventually being released. At one point, his sentence was reduced for reasons he wasn't clear about, and he was panicked that nothing would happen, uh, that he would simply go back through it again and again and again. So he tries to escape at one point deliberately to be arrested uh, and gets all the way to London, even hitching a lift with an officer, and arrives uh, at his mum and dad's house and his parents are absolutely furious with him. In many ways, the thing he was most worried about, uh, as with many conscientious objectors, actually, was uh, what his mum and dad and brothers and sisters and friends would say, as opposed to what the military or the state would say. And he arrives back at his dad's house in, 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 in North London and is sent immediately back uh, to base to report in. Now, Luckily, he was released. Uh, they they decided he was unlikely to make a uh, a, a good a, a good soldier, uh, and and then he he joined the Friends Ambulance Unit as well, where he was posted to uh, a, a bit attached to the Free French, and sailed off to uh, to to Egypt. He went to Syria and then to Tunisia and was in, and was serving and working with the Free French as they worked their way up through the liberation of Italy and into France. And actually, it was only on his return uh, at the end of the war uh, to Britain that he was formally recognised as a conscientious objector when he finally appeared before the tribunal. There seems to have been some administrative mess somewhere in the middle where no one was keep keeping track on his precise status, which enabled him to 
to do what he wanted to do all along, which was not spend time in prison, but to help uh, heal the sick and wounded. You mentioned there that Roy's biggest concern was really what his mum and dad would think. Was that a common thread through the people that you looked at? Um, How much did social stigma play a role in their experiences? So, interestingly, when conscientious objectors grappled with what their conscience was saying, what it meant they should do, and their obligations as a response... More often than not, they were thinking about those intimate personal relations. Uh, They were thinking about the consequences for their mother or or their father or their brother who might be in the military or what their girlfriend or or, or boyfriend might think uh, as kind of grand abstract ideas to do with socialism or nation or or religious religious faith. It's a truism, um, I think, that when people fight in war, uh, they're more often not fighting for their friends and neighbours and brothers and and sisters as they are for nations and grand collectives. I think that's also true of conscientious objectors when they they refuse to fight. Their convictions are threaded through their their obligations and their felt obligations and responsibilities uh, towards their families and friends, which means that their responses uh, are, are, are really, really significant uh, for them personally. Uh, so Roy Ridgway uh, was worried about what his mum thought, although he was lucky uh, in that um, his his brothers were also conscientious objectors. So he had very kind of firm family support there. But yeah, at one point the police turned up at his his house and he was petrified he was petrified for his mother. He wasn't petrified uh, for himself. He was also worried what the his office workers thought of him, and and what the particularly what the women thought of him in the place that he worked. So people could fall out, uh, and they often did fall out. But at the same time, very strong friendships were also made. Boy Ridgeway, in a, in a kind of moving interview he gave a long time after the war, said that his firmest friends were made in the process of being a conscientious objector. One of the other figures in your book who we talked about earlier is Stella Sinjin. How common were female conscientious objectors and were they treated any differently to their male counterparts? It's it's an interesting question and 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 in in, yeah, in the in the public imagination but also in in the in imagination of of many peace activists uh conscientious objectors are predominantly male. Um that's partly because uh, military conscription, when it was first introduced to the war, was for men. But later on in the war, a kind of industrial form of conscription was 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 introduced, um, and there was, of course, a long, much longer history of women playing a, a, a very significant role in the in the, in, in the British peace movement, fear uh, of Britain, uh, for example, but there the are many others. Um, but when industrial conscription was, was introduced. Uh, People like Stella and some of Stella's friends uh, had, had this particular experience. They would turn up at the, the ministry office at the Labour Exchange to register uh, and uh, as a conscientious objector determined that their conscience was publicly acknowledged. Uh, and the person at the, the desk would quietly turn them away, uh, would direct them in other directions. So if you're doing something else, that doesn't really matter. So they they weren't, often their conscience was not seen by the state at least as, as 
as significant or as important uh, as the conscience of, of, of many of the men. So they really had to struggle uh, uh, to be acknowledged and recognised as conscientious objectors. And that's partly one of the reasons why Stella Sinjin was determined to go to prison as a way of proving that her conscience and her conscience opposition to war was real and genuine and, and sincere. As you said earlier, many of these the people that you look at didn't really manage to stay out of war entirely. Um, they were driving ambulances on the front line and taking on other duties. How did they find this encounter with war when they came face to face with it? A, a mixture. Uh, for some of them, it was immensely exciting. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why actually... They wanted to take on ambulance work. Yeah, they were like many young men and women at the time who wanted to have an exciting life and they didn't want to be stuck at home. Tom Burns was uh, on the front line uh, in Finland uh, supporting uh, Finnish soldiers um, uh, in the winter of 1939 into 40, while most British soldiers were still stuck in barracks. And he, he wrote home very interestingly movingly about just how exciting it was to be near the sound of, of, of bullets and bombs going off. Um, but it was also terrifying, as it is equally uh, uh, for soldiers and, and others uh, caught up. And, and Roy Ridgway, who saw, who saw violence on, on several front lines, towards the end of the war, was had just simply had enough of it, and he'd seen far too much violence. Interestingly, though, the relationship between soldiers and conscientious objectors uh, was often very warm and respectful. Not only did they have to often serve next to each other, but Tom Burns, for example, was a, was a prisoner, taken prisoner in, um, and in a German prisoner of war camp. Uh, for several years, where he was living cheek by jowl with soldiers from all over the British Empire. And and the overwhelming sense you get from his letters, as well as accounts from some of the soldiers who were imprisoned with with him, was of, of mutual respect and interest, partly because he and other people like him had been willing to get their hands dirty, to, to go um, uh, where it was dangerous. He saw that and others saw that as a way of proving to others and to themselves, and to themselves, I think is really a really important part of it that they weren't actually cowards. That these images of conscientious objectors are somehow being cowardly or even effeminate in the uh, in, in the First World War were untrue, and they were just as willing to to, to face danger uh, as, as as anyone else. Mm. What impact did these wartime experiences have on the later lives of the people that you you followed? So in, some of them remained pacifists, uh, others didn't. Others took what they had seen in the war and decided actually that their, the, their previous conviction that humans could live without violence had been wrong and, uh, and, and changed their mind, if it were, and regretted what they had done. So Ronald Duncan was sent to Berlin shortly after the war as a playwright to do a kind of cultural exchange and, and, and writes in his, his memoir how on seeing the destruction uh, uh, he only felt guilt and remorse about the way he had spent the war. Others had similar responses. Fred Urquhart, who'd started the war, um, who's one of the people I write about, started the war as a Scottish, as a socialist, uh, drifted more and more to the right in, in, in later life and became increasingly conservative and wasn't involved in the, uh, in the pacifist movement at all. Whereas Roy Ridgway, 
for many years immediately after the war, he concentrated on bringing up his family and, and, and his career. But later on in life, he returned to the peace movement and was uh, kind of a, an important campaigner against uh, uh, nuclear arms uh, and, and nuclear weapons. So the story is, is, is mixed because people's lives took on different directions. But much more generally, I think we can see that the what you might call the ethic of conscientious objection has been very central to many aspects of, of, of British life and, and, and others, other conscientious objectors went on to, to help found Oxfam. So many of the first generation of, of, of people who worked overseas for Oxfam had served in ambulance units alongside Tom Burns and Roy Ridgeway with the French Ambulance Unit. Others, another conscientious objector, uh, a man called Eric Baker, was one of the people instrumental in setting up uh, Amnesty International. There's a very real sense, I think, in which we can see the, the ethic of conscientious objection as threaded through the history of post-war British human rights and humanitarianism. Unlike the First World War, I think that World War II today is often seen in fairly black and white terms in the public imagination. So it's seen really as as this moral crusade against fascism. Where do conscientious objectors fit into that picture? That's a good question. And in many ways, that's why I started this project, intrigued by these people who stood up for things that people, uh, many people think are important, freedom of conscience, uh, against war and so on, but refused to fight fascism and refused to fight the Nazis uh, in the Second World War uh, and trying to understand how they negotiated that position. Because the vast, vast majority of them and, and, and the people I describe in the book saw themselves as deeply, deeply anti-fascist. Uh, and then the question for them is, what is the best way to work against fascism? And, and some of them thought it was about witnessing, witnessing violence. Some of them thought it was about showing that another way of living was possible. So that's why Ronald Duncan uh, set up his communal farm as a way of showing that we don't have to turn to violence. Um, It's important to remember, though, that in 1939, Britain and, and the rest of the country did not go to war to end the Holocaust, although they were very committed to defeating fascism. In the minds of many conscientious objectors, what they were most worried about at that time was uh, repeating the First World War. So the lens in which they were understanding uh, the battle uh, and the turn to violence was the trenches and the violence and the destruction and the waste there. So although uh, uh, from the 21st century we understand the the Second World War through a very particular lens as, as you say, uh, the good war, the battle to end Nazism and the, and, and, and the battle to end the, the Holocaust. At the time, for conscientious objectors and, importantly, for many others, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't seen uh, in that particular way. And as a result, as they got to know more about uh, what was happening in, in, in the concentration camps, many of them did begin to change their mind uh, or felt guilt or adjusted what they did. Uh, And that's partly why many of them joined uh, the Friends Ambulance Unit or did something because they thought defeating fascism was important, even if personally carrying arms was not the way to do it. That was Tobias Kelly. His book is Battles of Conscience, British Pacifists and the Second World War. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 